0: Welcome to Sheffield, everyone, and to our spectacular new venue. I'm Sue Knott, Chair of the Children's Media Conference Advisory Board, and it's my pleasant duty to get things started here at the City Hall for CMC 2019. We have a treat in store in a few minutes as the leading presenter on Newsround, Leah Belletto, interviews everyone's favorite cook, Bake Off winner, documentary maker, and now children's book author, Nadia Hussein. And the first of our change makers is an activist. She'll be on the panel in the session tomorrow with her perspective on energizing kids to take part in what has become a new wave in political engagement. She's deeply involved with the UK Student Climate Network and currently coordinates their schools outreach and the Green New Deal campaign across the country while working to organize monthly school strikes, both here and internationally. In February, she led the London Climate Strike March She's already in demand for radio and TV news comment on the school strikes movement. And now she's here to ask us where we stand in this new wave of commitment from the young people we serve. Please welcome changemaker Noga Levi Ravaport.
1: Hi. My name's Noga Levi Ravaport, and I'm 17 years old. I'm the co founder of a youth theatre company, a big sister to two clever kids, and a student who's always been interested in politics, in feminism, in human rights, and how youth leadership has the power to change everything. On February 15th, I turned London's first school strike for climate into a disruptive, rebellious march, and since then, I've narrowed my focus onto climate activism working with the UK Student Climate Network, a horizontal volunteer-based group, to organise nationwide strikes and coordinate the new youth climate justice movement on an international scale. I've spoken in Parliament in May Day protests, in front of roadblocks and strikes, at UN organisations and across Europe, been covered by numerous press and media channels, and now I'm here in front of you. And I'm here because there is a message from the Global Youth Strike for Climate Movement that every young person should know, and it's what needs to be ingrained in young minds from the very beginning, that they should never have to ask permission or defer to others in order to make a change and act on what they feel is right. It's something I think about every day, because it's a belief that the actions and futures of children rely on, particularly when we are faced with a dire ecological emergency there has never been a time where it is more imperative that children around the world realise their own strength and take action for their planet. And that's where you come in. Currently, over 150 countries are registered for monthly or weekly strikes around the world. And whilst we are a generation actively seeking to break down stereotypes, the archetype of the digital generation is one we neither want to nor can shake free. We have grown from one teenager to millions of children within the space of a year through a new kind of grassroots organizing that redefines what it means to spread the word and make ourselves heard, with the role of social media and on screen content playing an instrumental part in this. For the first time, young people, kids, have access to a world of information and encouragement, of action and ideas. But for too long, the climate crisis has been treated in the same frame as other political or even ideological current affairs and discussions, both on and off screen. It's time for the media to begin treating this emergency with the severity it deserves, prioritizing imminent climate breakdown, working in what the future will look like into the content that you produce, The climate crisis is not an issue that demands political balance. It's an issue that demands action and education. And you cannot ignore the global call for children to become the leaders of today. Yet that is exactly what you have been doing. By playing a delicate game of fragile political tightrope, you neglect the the tools for children's empowerment that are nestled in your hands. I'm standing in front of people who affect children's views via books, magazines, games, online cartoons, kids' newspapers or news round, in dramas, in factual programmes, and documentaries, in comedies, in theatre shows. So where are you in this movement? What have you been doing to avert this crisis? The youth have shown a radical consciousness and international solidarity striking to make our voices heard, striking to remind those in power that we are worthy of a future, a world, a planet on which we can not only survive but live and breathe and work. We have been demanding for months that children's media push aside the strict political balance and restrictive guidelines you placed upon yourselves, trying to balance the right and the left, the old and the new, You can't balance what you feed an entire generation when all that generation wants the media to show them is what's really happening and what we can do. The rules of our society are being rewritten. But to rewrite the rules, you must first tear them down. Will I find a headline every single day about us? Will five-year-olds tormented by eco-anxiety know that they are not alone? Will children and toddlers and teenagers and adults together realise that they are the backbone of this global movement? Will you tell them there is so much more that they can do? Show them a future torn apart by the climate crisis in TV dramas, in animations, in 60-second Instagram clips, in YouTube cartoons. Show them a future saved and rebuilt by a green, socially equitable economy. Show them and encourage them and strengthen them because there is no greater or more relevant use of children's media than the action and empowerment of those watching and waiting to learn. So forget your policies. Forget your rules and regulations because we're tearing those to the ground. So follow us. Use what you have to tell the children of the world about what we're doing and why. Tell them what they're facing and what they can do. Tell them to stand up and to rise against injustice. Tell them to strike and to teach them about the failures we have faced and the successes to come. Show them a world that they have to understand by using the language that they understand. Teach the future because we are the future and stand with us as we demand action. The media is an undeniably integral part of children's lives. So show them our lives too. Invite youth strikers to present your programs, to take part in shows, to front your content, and advise you on where to go. Engage with us, and millions of children around the world will engage with the world around them. Youth strikers across the globe have shown the power of collective action. And now it's time to join this by using what you have, by doing what you do as children's content creators to prove that your words are not those of false leaders in Parliament, but that here promises have meaning. The headlines and programs and trailers, they're waiting for you to make them, not the other way around. Your children are waiting. We're waiting for you to catch up. Thank you.
2: Brilliant. Hello, welcome everyone. Noga, that was a fantastic speech. I wish I was that confident at the age of 17. So inspirational and so important uh, in this day and age. It often feels with social media that we, we already know the people we watch on television. And with our next guest, Nadia, 15 million of us watched her rise to fame and win the great British bake off on the BBC. So it feels quite retro that I should be standing here with my piece of paper, my scribbled notes to introduce this hijab-wearing British Bangladeshi superstar to the stage. Uh, She wowed us, didn't she, with her creativity in the kitchen. And more recently, she has allowed us to join her on her journey of vulnerability with her BBC documentary, Anxiety and Me. But beyond her brilliance in baking, her talents have also taken her to write a column for The Times, to publish cookery books, and now she is venturing into the world of children's picture books. Of course, she's also baked a 90th birthday cake for Her Majesty the Queen, as you do. Um, This brilliant, busy mum of three has also conquered the media, conquered social media, and that's not easy, as I'm sure you all will agree. So, without further ado, I'd like to introduce to the stage the wonderful Nadia Hussein.
3: Hello. <laughs>
2: Thank you. Thank you. Nadia, every time we meet, it feels less like an interview, journalists present having and a And it's chat. a chat, isn't it? Yeah. With yeah. cake and tea. Yeah. But we'll have water now. Yeah. <laughs> So you won Bake Off in 2015, um, less than five years in the industry. Tell me what you've learned about the industry, about yourself. We're getting deep right away. Okay, we're
3: going straight (laughs) in. Well, it's not a nine to five, that's for sure. (laughs) There is no such thing as... Um, well I, I think nothing really ever... Pr- unless it was something that you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I, and it certainly wasn't something I ever intended on doing. I was going to become... At eight, I remember saying to myself, I will be an archaeologist. <laughs> that never happened. Then it was going to be social work. N- and, and, yeah. and nothing quite prepares you for um, this industry, because it it's relentless and it's hard work. Um, but it's wonderful, all in the same breath. So, um, And it's not something I've expected to do. So I kind of got thrown into it and I wouldn't have it any other way because it is, it is hard work mm. and it does take you away from your family and, and there are late nights and there's lots of travelling and lots of hotel rooms, none of which you know, I enjoy sometimes, but I love it.
2: Mm. Yeah. And it was your husband who filled out the application form yeah. to get you part of Bake Off. Have you forgiven him?
3: <laughs> well, it, it's it's really weird because when he so he put the application form in and said, um, "I'm doing this application form, and you are. I'm gonna. I think you should do it because at that time I was at a point in my life where my anxiety had really taken hold, and mm. it was really difficult. Was, I was struggling to get out of bed. Now, you think when you've got a sort of six-year-old, a five-year-old." And a two-year-old at home, you know, being, at ho- being in bed isn't really an option. You mm. know you've got a nearly two-year-old, and being in bed isn't an option. There are no more lay-ins. No, <laughs> you don't lie in, you don't get a rest. And I was spending more and more time in bed, and my husband was kind of coming up with these elaborate stories about how mum's just not feeling very well. And, like, when you're not feeling very well every weekend, the kids get it. You know, mm. they know something's not right. And he just said, I think you should do this um, And I I mean, I I find it really interesting that he thinks that going on the biggest baking show in the country is a a form (laughs) of therapy. Um, Because I remember just getting there thinking, oh, I remember getting the call saying that I made it to the final 12. And I I called him and I said, so what am I supposed to do now? Um, And he said, yeah, so just like do it, but just don't get kicked out week one, you know, because that would be really embarrassing. Um, So yeah, I, I, yeah, he did it because he felt like I needed to do something where the kids weren't involved, where he wasn't involved, Rose it was doing something you. on my own because I'd spent so many years just doing, you know, just being at home for them. And he's done really well in his career, and the kids were doing really well. And he just said, like, What do you do for
2: yourself? And mm. it turned out nothing. So uh, this was my thing to do. And it brought so many opportunities yeah. after winning. You didn't embarrass yourself, you went on to <laughs> win it. <laughs> and it, like I said, it brought you lots of opportunities, including being part of. The junior Bake Off, yeah. you're a judge. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to show a quick clip of that first yeah, of all. Let's do it. <laughs> the third baker going through to the final is.
1: Nikki.
0: <laughs> We've got a finalist. Yes, that is just great. And what great! great finalists they are. I am proper, proper excited. Great baking,
3: great day. They're natural bakers, they're exciting bakers and you can tell they enjoy baking and that's why they went through today.
2: I'm excited. Um, (laughs) I actually can't put into
1: words how shocked I was. To call myself a finalist, it's... Incredible. I do think it's gonna take a really long time for it to actually sink in, that I'm a finalist of Junior Bake Off.
2: I'm always shocked when they put me through because I've like, I'm always doubted myself. I'm happy like this much. Just look at them, It's, It's amazing to see kids thriving under so much pressure, but what was it like working on that show for you?
3: For me, that was it, um, when I when I got that job. It was um, it was quite it was quite it was a shock because for me Bake Off, you know the grown up version. My kids always watch the uh, the kids Bake Off, but to me they were they felt like two very separate things. Mm. But when you actually look at these children who compete, they are better than grown-ups, you know, they're just, you know, and they're honest. And that's what I love about them, because grown-ups, we, we kind of say, oh no, but I didn't want to win, and no, we're all very humble and very, you know, we're very, very you know, we, 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 ha- we think we want, we always want to say the right things. Kids are like, I want to win, <laughs> I want to win this thing. And, and that's what I love about their honesty. Um, and it was really odd for me, because when I went in as a judge, I remember the first thing I did was, they didn't know I was a judge, and so there was this wonderful whoop when I walked in. But you know what I did? I went straight for, I went straight down the aisle to the left worktop because that's the one they always put me on when mm-hmm. I was on Bake Off, and it's the same ten. Went in on the, and then Allegra said, "Right, come on, come back, come back. <laughs> you're on this side now," and it was really, really odd. Um, But my kids, just for them, that moment, they're like, mom, you get to be an actual judge. And it's really weird, because I have imposter syndrome. Any job that I do, I just always question myself as to why I'm doing it. And I just said, really, can I be a judge? Um, Even
2: after everything?
3: Even after everything. Even now, I do things, and I just think, why am I doing this? Mm. Um, Yeah, I suffer with that terribly, so. I remember in that moment thinking, oh, I can't, I can't possibly do this. And then you just see these wonderful kids who are so excited to be there, so excited for me to be there. And they're just relishing every moment of that experience. And then um, you just get caught up in all of the madness and the loveliness of doing a show like that. And it's just, it's wonderful. Tell me about some of
2: the techniques that you had to use of being in that tent. Because there is pressure, isn't there, for the kids. And thinking back to your time in that tent, what mm-hmm. was difficult? How did you cope and, man- and get yourself through it as a judge as a contestant as to a, begin with but also as
3: a judge um, as a contestant it was um I remember because I, I wasn't. I didn't tell anyone about my anxiety, mm. so that nobody knew that I was struggling. Um, and I was going home. I was having panic attacks in the toilet. I was having, you know, I was it, it, well, I was taking breaks to have panic attacks, you know. And it was just, it was nobody knew. Um, so that was really tough. And I would have moments where because I, I, we didn't have our phones. When you that weekend, when you're filming, you only get your phone at night, that's it, you don't get it at all. Um, and I was taking the moments at night just to ring my husband and just, like and he's on the other end, 180 miles away from home, mm. listening to me having this panic attack. So it wasn't easy. Um, and I got, you know, every week was a battle because I was, for 10 weeks, I was living on three hours of sleep because I was so desperate to practice. And now that I was in it, it was just all I wanted to do was really well. I just wanted to, because I've never ever really seen anything through. Like, I, 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 I suppose I have, but this was one thing that i wanted to see through. No matter what stage I was kicked out, I just wanted to make sure mm. I gave it the best chance. So I was, um, my kids had no idea I was on Bake Off at the time. And uh, so I was coming home uh, after the weekend of filming and then spending, so when they were at school, I was baking and then just before I was picking them up, I was cleaning the kitchen, bringing them home, cooking them dinner like I'd just been doing stuff around the house. They had no clue. It's like more cake today mum? (laughs) I'm like yeah go on ask more cake. Have eight of them. (laughs) Um, And then I got really superstitious and I was baking 11 times 11, I was baking the same thing 11 times because I felt like if I didn't bake it 11 times then I would then if something would go horribly wrong. So I was becoming really superstitious mm. and then they would go to bed. And lucky for me, they couldn't tell the time. So I would change all the clocks in the house. <laughs> I did, I did it so bad. I changed all the clocks in the house. And so um, it was technically, it was—I mean, it was to them. It was seven o'clock, but actually, it might have been half five. <laughs> and nobody they, needs to know. Nobody—they know now. Um, they're like, "Mum, have you been messing around?" Like, no, no. I know you can tell the time now. Um, so yeah, I was changing, and then sending them to bed, and then I was—I was then doing, you know, I was practicing till three o'clock in the morning, and then sleeping
2: till six o'clock, and then waking up and doing it all over mm. again for ten weeks. That's a lot to carry on your shoulders. How did you manage to then go back into the tent for Junior Bake Off and experience that?
3: That was really tough because when those... it was, it, I'd never really felt it until I looked into those kids' eyes and you could see them, like, you could see how much they wanted it. You could see how, you could see when they were yawning how many nights they've stayed up to practice. You could see it in their face. They were desperate to do well. Mm. Whether it was to do well to win the competition or whether, I mean, like Tyrese there, he was there. He was like, I'm going to win that competition. I'm going to win it. (laughs) But the others, it was, you know, for Nikki Lilly, she was, she's an incredible, wonderful human being who I've met lots of times since. Um, And she did it because it was, it, it, it was a fight. Just like mm. you know, a lot of things in her life, it was a struggle, it was a fight, and it was something she had to prove to herself. And so they were all doing it for different reasons, but I could see it in their mm. faces. Um, but then I had to be like, and then I had to like pick their cake apart and yeah. say, <laughs> was like, "Oh my gosh, I can't do this." Um, and they, I said, "Look, I'm going to have to be really honest, guys." And they said, "No, we want you to mm. be honest. That's why we like you." Um, and so I was when it didn't work out. I was honest, and I said it mm. didn't work out. So, um, but yeah, it was it was difficult switching the roles. Mm. But a good experience for you. Oh, so it was a fantastic experience. Yeah. And I love working with kids. I think they're just they're just so wonderful and honest and that's what I love about children. I they're so agree. yeah, brutally honest. They just say it as it is, and I think that, you know, I
2: think we could learn a thing or two mm-hmm. from children. And you have three children yourself, yes, you've yeah. worked in children's TV. <laughs> yeah. um, and now you're venturing into picture books with My Monster and Me. Yeah. Tell us a bit about the origin. Why did you decide to do that? So I wrote the book. There it is. Look!
3: Oh, it's huge. <laughs> the illustration's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. Just wonderful. Um, it's just oh, look at that. Oh, just it just makes me so happy. Um, I haven't actually seen it in its physical mm. form yet, but you know I've got bits of that knocking around in my office, so it's quite nice to see it that massive. I think I might have that when I leave. <laughs> um, It just, it's, you know, it's 500 words and it's an opportunity to tell children a story in 500 words. I'd rather do 100,000 because at least you can tell the story in 100,000. It's so difficult. Mm. It's a totally different beast um, writing 500 words and being able to tell the story exactly as it, you want it to be told in that, you know, in, it's really difficult. Mm-hmm. I kept, you know, I was going over, I was like 1,500 words. I was like, I can't take, get rid of a 1,000 words. And I went from something like 2,000 to kind of really kind of squashing it and condensing it down to five. And it was really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the hardest things I've written by far. Um, but I'd done this long before my documentary, so yes. um, because what I didn't, uh, before I'd done my Anxiety in Me documentary, um, I never, I've only ever seen a doctor a couple of times about my anxiety, mm. and what I did know about that was um, that I'd been suffering with anxiety from a very young age, um, and there was no diagnosis, but I know that I'd always felt the same way since for as long as I could remember from maybe six six Six. or seven Um, and I just if I think back to myself as a six or seven year old you know I look at I'm 34 years old and even now I struggle to get help you know Mm. it's taken me this long to get help Um, and I can only I and I know you know I can only imagine the hundreds of thousands of people who struggle to get help um, as adults and I imagine our you know our younger generation our children are you know they will suffer with anxiety and I know it exists because it happened to Mm. me so there are loads of kids out there who do suffer or perhaps have some form of anxiety that they don't understand and that's why I thought right I'm gonna write this book and it was it was literally a light bulb moment where I just rang my agent and I said I'm writing this book and that was it and I was just downstairs in the office at 1 o'clock in the morning just writing this book and I said I've written the book (laughs) <laughs> that was it. It's just, I, I wrote it, now let's find somebody who's going to publish it. Tell us a bit about the storyline of the book. It's about a... So this is... The, my Monster and Me came mm. from what I call my anxiety. I've always called it my monster. And I think lots of people... It's about it being identifiable to people because sometimes when you suffer with anxiety, um, it's quite... The hardest thing is explaining that feeling or explaining how it makes you feel or what, how it manifests itself. And... Um, I used to try and describe it, and and very few people knew that I had anxiety, apart from my sisters. Like, even now, my parents, you know, my parents only recently learned that I suffered with anxiety. They didn't even know up until now. Um, And it was a way of describing it. And I used to call it, I I still call it my monster. And um, in the story, the monster starts off really, really big. And I always say, you know, when it's consuming me, it's so big, it's in my face, and it's right there. And it's shouting at me, and I can't, look left or right, it's always just there. And there are moments where it's just behind me and I know it's there and it kind of taps me on the shoulder occasionally and says, hey, just reminds me that (laughs) it's there. But I know it's there and it is, I'm struggling to get through my day, but I know that I can still do it. And there are other moments where it's like this big, and I can stick it in my pocket, and I can walk around. I know it's there, and it's not going to bother me because I've told it, "You stay quiet, and you stay in there. You're not coming out today." You're on top
2: of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I'm
3: on top of it, and and you know, and it got, you know it changes, and I think, that, and that's where the story comes from, where the monster is enormous, mm-hmm. where. Um, you, you know it's consuming and, and right at the end the monster just gets smaller and smaller through the story and in the end he just picks it up picks it up and puts it in the pocket
2: why do you think there needs to be this open conversation about children and mental health and how they're feeling because it's clearly very important to you
3: it is it is it's you know t- there is no point in having um, I love, don't get me wrong, I love baking cakes, love all of that, but there's no point in having this if it's not, if I'm not using it to do something good. Mm. And I think I, I, it's something that I've suffered with, and it's it's real, because it's real for me. It's very easy for me to come up here and say, this is what I'm passionate about, and this is what we need to fix, because it is real for me, and it's something that has hindered every aspect of my life from as long as I can remember. You know, it's always been there, and you know, my monster's always been very big. You know, very rarely is it stuck in my pocket, um, and, and, and and I've had to fight really hard to get it that small t- for it to fit in my pocket um, so yeah it's not it' it's, it's always been really important for me and to, you know as much as I love baking cake you know we don't talk about anxiety enough and I know that I know that because um, you know I'm, I can't wait for this book to come out but as soon as the documentary was out I realized then that you know I, we're not we're grown-ups and we're not talking about mm. anxiety imagine what damage we're doing to our children by not talking about it so it's about saying right come on let's talk about it let's be honest because I think that's what I said I think we, we could learn from our children we could learn from the younger generation they're so brutally honest that's what we need to do because kids don't want to be lied to and I lear- I've learned that the hard way through my own children um, and I try and sugarcoat things. And I remember one example, my husband, when my son lost his first tooth, um, he said, Daddy, should we put this under the pillow for the tooth fairy? So he sat him down, poor thing, four years old. And my husband said, listen, love, um, so in a very broad northern accent, I can't do it. I'm not very <laughs> at you, he said, listen, love, I've, um, so you know the tooth fairy? So she's not real." Um, and you know that money that the tooth fairy, that money that the tooth fairy puts under your pillow, Well, daddy goes to work and daddy earns that money, here's a fiver, you can have that, <laughs> give me your tooth, stuck it in an envelope, and that's it, and he was like, and that was it. He was so honest, and I, I, he crushed me, my husband crushed me that day. I said, you couldn't give him the tooth fairy? <laughs> I just want him, wanted him to have the tooth yeah. fairy. He didn't give it to him. He said, no, because why should he? And at, in that moment, I remember, wh- I, I, in that moment, <laughs> I, I really did hate my husband. I was like, how could you, how could you do that to him? Like, I like a fairy tale, why not? Mm. Just let him have that. And, and he was really honest about it. And, and it's really weird because my kids are brutally honest as well now. <laughs> they're like, no, 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 mum, mum, mum." So they're just like, they stop me in my tracks whenever I, I try and fabricate something. They're like, listen, we know you're lying. Tell us the truth. <laughs> so like, you know, mm. they like the truth. And I think, I think we could learn a thing or two from them.
2: I'd be really interested to know what conversations you have with your children about anxiety and how they're feeling and also what they make of the book so a lot of the books that i've written they've been really involved because yeah. it's great
3: i think when you've got guinea pigs at home why not use them so when i'm doing cookery books you know it's just like when i'm doing the kids cookbooks, the cookery books i'm like guys try this what do you think of that and again they're honest so that does help um, so yesterday i did a chocolate cake and they're mm. like mom that's dry <laughs> mom that's really dry i was like okay enough i knew it was dry i was like okay fine i get it um but they haven't actually read this book. Oh. They haven't read it. They've seen the front cover and they're very excited. Mm. So I want them to be as excited about this book as anybody else would okay. be. Um, and they've ha- they, they normally would help me write a book, but I, don't, I, I didn't let them, let them help me, because um, I talk about my anxiety, but they didn't really understand my anxiety until a couple of months ago when they watched the documentary mm. back. And now they kind of look at me sometimes, and, and I, can see them, I can see it in their face. There's that silence, this element of pity. There's just a tiny little bit of, oh. I see it, but sometimes they're <laughs> like, oh. And I said, "Don't do that. Mm. You know, like it's okay. You know, like but we should talk about it. Don't feel sorry for mm. me. If you want to ask me questions, ask me questions. Let's talk about it. So, but we have we have lots of little rules in our house, and one thing we have is." Um, sometimes when you're feeling anxious, we, uh, we don't want to talk about it. And, and I say, look, I'm a grown up and I don't like talking about it. And you're kids and I can understand sometimes you don't want to talk mm. about things. But we have a rule in our house. It's called the top step rule. So they, if they're feeling really anxious or feeling sad and they can't talk about it, but they want to, they sit on the top of the step and somebody will see them. Oh. Because there's always someone around. Um, and just yesterday, my sister, my little girl just sat there. I called her my sister. That's really weird. <laughs> that's what, how we address each other sometimes because I didn't give her a sister. Um, so she, sa- so she said, she did. She said that's why I have to. Sh- we pretend to be sisters sometimes. Um, uh, <laughs> and so she sits she sat on the top of the stairs and 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 I saw her as I was coming out the kitchen and I said oh you know and I knew straight away she wanted to talk about something mm. so I went to the top of the stairs and sat with her and she just said oh because I haven't been out for about six or seven days cause I've been at home doing the school run and, and and she knows that I'd be out today and she said so you won't be here to tuck me in and I said no I won't be and she said oh, okay that's just worrying me a little bit and that's oh, just, that wow. was it and it was yeah. just something really simple but she just needed to talk about it and, and she didn't want to say it out loud but we We have our top step rule, where we sit there and talk in in
2: case we're feeling anxious, but I just encourage them to talk. And it's keeping that dialogue open, I think, that makes it easier Mm -hmm. to discuss. Um, I think it's a really good point now, we're talking about anxiety, to take a look at anxiety and me in a little clip, and then we'll delve a bit deeper into that.
3: But the closer I get to the train, the more I feel the panic rising inside me.
0: Okay. So, I'm really tense, my mask really tense. Okay, well, yeah, relax. If that's, it's okay to, have it to be tense. It's, But, you know, you do, it's unnecessary, you know? Yeah, you, yeah. You see it's unnecessary. Like the looking down is unnecessary. Yeah, it's almost like you're repeatedly telling yourself, I'm an anxious person, you know? Yeah. And, and you know what? You don't, absolutely don't have to be. Yeah. And so some of it is about, you're just not going to give in to the anxiety to say, look down, you know, to do this, do that. It's
3: taken all of my strength to keep my head up. i oh, okay. Thank you. It's all right. It's not as bad as I thought it was going
0: to be. It never is. No,
3: no.
0: Here you are. Helen to yeah, London. And? Yeah. It's not as scary as I thought it was going to be. Is it scary at all, no? No. At the moment, this moment, I don't think it is scary. It's it's... scary. And, you know, and and, and if you were to panic now, if you were to have a panic attack, what then? It would go away. It would go away?
1: It would go away. You don't need to go. This is me saying that
3: when it happens, I'm not going to force it to go away. It will just go
0: away. It will just go away because there's nothing to be afraid of.
3: This is yeah. not something I do. I was not expecting to be here today, and here no. I am.
0: You, you know for sure, sure you can do it.
3: Now I know I can yeah. do
0: it. Yeah, I mean, we've still got a bit of work to do. Yeah. But...
3: Guys, let me show you. Look, what I... look I came to Trafalgar Square. woo And look, I'm not dead. I'm not dead or anything.
2: For us, Nadia, that was, I suppose, maybe a minute and a half sequence of television. What was that like for you, though? Um, That, for me, was
3: three weeks of um, one of the hardest bits of filming that I've ever done. I was just laughing at the beginning bit, because I'm saying to Paul, yeah, 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 (laughs) yeah. It's basically, shut up, Paul. (laughs) Shut up, I'm not listening to a word you're saying, Paul, because I'm really anxious right now. But it was close to three weeks of really intense filming, and what I hadn't... What I hadn't imagined, like I went in with the best of intentions. This was my idea. This is me. I said, this is what I want to do. Um, And this is kind of, this has been years in the, you know, about a year and a bit in the making. Mm. And then finally, when it came to the filming, I just thought to myself, what on earth am I doing? Why am I doing this for? And then when we started filming, the the more I got into it, what I hadn't realized was all those years are kind of burying these feelings. suddenly Paul was saying, we're unearthing the Mm. lot. We're going to... Just like, we're going to dig the lot up. And that for me was one of the hardest things I've ever, ever had to film. Um, And there were moments when I, 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 right on the edge at sort of one o'clock in the morning, and and, and I I would just ring and say, I'm not doing this. I don't care what contract I've signed. I don't care who sues me. I'm not doing Mm. it. I'm done. I'm not going back. And then I'd wake up in the morning, and then I would just... Wait, and I would just go, and then I, and I and I did that every day for about three weeks, and I really struggled with that. It was really, really difficult. Um, and my husband kept
2: saying, "Ask yourself why you're doing this. Think That's it. That's what I wanted to ask you. Why? Why did you it's? You know, it's anxiety. It's not something that you can yeah. contain. It's." Have taken a lot of strength to do that, but why did you decide, right, well, I'm, I'm going to do this to myself?
3: Well, we always say it, don't we? We always say anyone who suffers or anybody who doesn't or anybody who talks about anxiety, they say, we need to talk more. And so this was me talking
2: mm.
3: to millions of people. Um, and I did it the best way I knew how. And I thought there's no point in being sat here and having the ability to make something like this and saying, I'm not going to make it just because I'm scared. Because if I'm saying we need to talk, then I need to prove to myself that we're gonna talk, and this is me saying, look, if I can talk and I can tell millions of people, here you go, this is me, I'm giving you my story, this is what happened to me, and this this is what I live with every single day, then surely somebody out there will, um, s- s- you know, find the strength, the courage to go out there and, and say, do you know what, if she can do it, average Nadia, I can do it too. And I think that's really important. Um, and I had to just, you know, because I say it all the time, we need to talk. And, and, and this was me proving to myself that mm. this is us talking. Um, and I put my money where my mouth is. It's just like, we're going to have to talk. We're going to do it. Let's do it. And, and I honestly... Ever since that documentary, everybody that I've met, every single person that I've met at a food festival, at a book signing, you name it, on the street, when I'm doing the shopping, when I'm taking the bins out, there is always someone saying, thank you for that. You know, Mm. just talking about the documentary. They don't care about anything else. It's always the documentary. And I think it's a wonderful thing. And there's lots of people who are now talking. And, you know, I even met with somebody whose husband's a doctor and said, you did a terrible thing because now everybody's ringing the doctor. And I'm like, no, hold on a second. Now, hold on a second. Um, But yeah, people are talking, people Mm. are ringing their doctors, people on social media saying, you know, I went to the doctors, you know, I finally, after all these years, decided I'm going to go to the doctors because I see myself in you and um, I think it's got us talking.
2: Where are you at with your own anxiety now then? Um,
3: Kind of behind me, Mm -hmm. tapping at the moment, Mm -hmm. so not in my pocket. but it's it's something that when I when I when I did the documentary with Paul, um, he said that he could cure me, and I'm like the biggest skeptic. And I, I'm also like my dad's daughter. I question everything. It just every time he said something, I'm like, really? Why? Mm. Why do you say that? And and, ha- I, and he said he could cure me, and like I haven't fully finished the I haven't fully finished the course or the treatment because I just haven't because of time and life and kids. Um, but, you know, it's still there, mm. you know, it's still there. And, and often I wonder, and I, there's something I said at the very beginning of the documentary was, you know, who am I without it? Because I don't know anybody else. You learn to cope with Yeah, it and I don't, yeah. I don't know anyone else. Like, I, that, I've always had my anxiety. If it wasn't around anymore, who would I be? Because mm. without it, I don't, know that I, I, the per, I don't know the person without anxiety. So in some ways, um, I've just kind of learned to live with it. And it's not always easy. Um, For my husband Mm. he's the one i feel for the most because i can kind of hide away from everybody else except for him we share a bed you know Mm. like he can't get away from me Mm. i'm right there (laughs) you know really sad sometimes and i i I occupy his space sometimes and he just doesn't move me he's like i'm just going to leave her alone he just knows now um so it's not always easy on Mm. him but i think what was great about doing the documentary was that people Um, lots of people, not just sufferers, also the people that are around people who suffer anxiety also Mm. now understand what, you know, how to help and what it's like to live with somebody who suffers with anxiety. So, um, yeah, it's not always easy. It's still there. It's still there. Yeah.
2: But you're learning to navigate it and talk about
3: it. Absolutely. And especially having three young children at home and I've got two nearly teen. My eldest is nearly a teenager now and he is, so up and down at the moment, hormones, mm. and he's just kind. Of, and, and he asks lots of questions, which I always welcome. I just say mm. no question. You ask me anything, and I will answer it. Um, so he doesn't like leave anything out. He always asks me loads of um, interesting questions that I can't always answer, but I try. I try. So we talk about. We have a very open discussion about
2: anxiety in our house. There's no. There's no question that I, I won't answer. But there are so many pressures, aren't there, for children? nowadays with mm. social media and having to fit in or be perfect. What do you, how do you feel about social media? Because sometimes I feel like, could we uninvent it? Would that benefit us? How do you feel about it, particularly with children in mind?
3: Yeah, I mean, we can't, there's some things we just can't take back. Unfortunately, it's there now, mm. but it's their world. Um, and it's a double-edged sword for me because it's not mine. You know, it's not mm. my world. It hasn't been, you know, and I grew up, you know, Playing on train tracks and picking yeah. blackberries, and and my kids are like, "Can we watch telly now? Can we go on the iPad now?" It's like, "No, no, no." Um, so they, you know, they it's their world and it's something that it worries me because I've got you know a teenager. He's he's nearly in he's a teenager in a couple of months, um, and. His first question was can I go on Instagram. I was like oh. It's that dreaded question, isn't oh. it? Yeah, that's the one I don't want to answer. <laughs> I'm like, so, who wants to eat ice cream? <laughs> like I avoid I avoid answering that one a lot. Um but he keeps asking me, can I go on so- mm. can I go on Instagram? And I want to say no, but it's his world, you know, it's, it's the hot top everyone, that's the mm. way they communicate these days. And as long as I teach him the rights and the wrongs and the do's and the don'ts and, you know, we don't invite everybody into our home equally, mm. we don't invite everybody onto our social media. So I think if we, you know, with the right guidance, I can't see why they can't navigate through it. And they have to learn, mm. they have to learn to make those mistakes, they have to learn to do the wrong thing to learn what the right thing is. So yeah, it's a double-edged sword. Mm. I don't always love it, so. I have a rule in my house, seven o'clock. I usually put, we have a little biscuit tin with no biscuits in. Um, it's got all the phones, all the devices, all the stuff that goes bleep, bleep and vibrates mm. just straight in there. It's like, just get rid. So on a weekend, we just get rid um, and, and just put it. That's why I'm not very good at doing stuff like that. I'm not mm. good at just kind of snap, snap, snapping where I am and mm. what I'm doing all the time. So I just kind of stick it all in a tin and say, you know. And, and we have days where we're all watching a movie, but we're all on our phones doing stuff as well. So equally, there's, you know, balance, and there isn't. So yeah, it, I love it sometimes, and, and I hate it just as much.
2: So as being a parent to your t- children, you're you're a role model for your children and other kids around the country. You're British-Bangladeshi woman who is representing um, on screen. Let's talk about diversity because I couldn't have you here without not mentioning it. Yeah. Um, I've read an article recently where Naomi Campbell was talking about how she feels that diversity at the moment is a trend. Mm. So we'll have a black woman on the front cover of Vogue or there'll be a black family introduced on Coronation Street. But she says it's a trend and actually there needs to be real change. Do you agree? Mm. How do you feel about diversity in this industry?
3: I remember the first time I realised well, that there was, there was an issue was when I was, I was filming Big Family Cooking Showdown and there was probably in total in the entire studio, cameramen, sound guys, everybody included, there was probably about 60 people in one room and I was the only coloured person and the only time there was a second coloured person was when the runner came in uh, who would make a cup of tea. He'd, he'd do the teas and the runs and the rounds and cook and, and the tidying up and that's the only other time there were only, of maybe 60 plus people, there were two of us. Mm. And that sudden, and I remember just getting a cold sweat, thinking, oh my goodness. And just realizing that there's something not quite right here. so of course it's important, you know, mm. growing up, I did not see anybody like me on television. And that's why I absolutely just, for me, Ainsley Harriet was the God on television. It was just like Ainsley, like- I mean, I w- come on, the legend. Yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But he was one of very yeah. few people. And for me watching him on anything, on anything for me, was just like, oh, I get him. I, I don't know. It was just being able to identify with him. Um, so, yeah, certainly diversity wasn't something that I grew up with. And, you know, reading a book, I couldn't open up a book and read a story and say, so oh, I get that story and understand where that story's from or identify with a character. None of that. So, it is absolutely 100% important now. Um, as for Naomi Campbell's comments about it being a trend, a fad, people look at mental health and call it a trend or a fad that we're just, it's a thing that celebrities talk about now and it'll be gone. You know what? they might be right. But if we call it a trend or a fad, we're wishing it away. We're saying that it's here and it's, it's time for it to go. And I don't believe that the little diversity that we do have, I don't think we should label it as a trend or a fad and wish it away. I think if it's here, even in its tiniest form, we should celebrate that mm. and look to making that a bigger, better thing rather than calling it a trend or a fad. Um, so yeah, so I, I can't say I agree with that. <laughs> can't say I agree with that, but um, yeah, no, I think it's something that, you know, it's happening. And if that change is happening, even if it's in the smallest amount, we should celebrate that mm. and we should look, at, you know, and, and, and look for it to grow and
2: become bigger and better. What would you say you need from the industry to improve diversity? If there was one thing that could be improved, what would you say? is needed?
3: I don't, I mean, do you know what? I don't know that I've been in, in it long enough to know mm. what it is that we need to improve it. But there's, you know, for me to be in an industry where there isn't somebody like me. So I, mm. I go to food festivals, you know, um, and, and I, tu- you know, I, and I turn up to these I do t- book signings and things, and I turn up, and I, usually I'm the only mm. person like me there, and, and and sometimes that scares the life out of me. I just think, really? oh, my. yeah, it mm. genuinely does scare me, and um, there are moments where I can almost feel the "you don't belong here." You don't have to always hear the words; you can see it, and and sometimes I've heard the words, um, and I've and you know and and. It's really hard because sometimes I've ended up just kind of like walking away and just having a good cry and then coming back and saying no. And there's a rule that I have in my, I tell my kids this all the time, I always say elbows out. um, Because when I did Hajj, five years ago when I did the pilgrimage, there's a rule when you're in Hajj is that if you want to keep your space, you've got to keep your elbows out (laughs) because it's so tightly packed. They say, keep your elbows out. And so I always tell my kids, elbows out. Like if you want your space, keep your elbows out. And so whenever I turn up to a situation where I feel like I don't belong and I feel like I don't I don't have a space for me. um, I always say to myself, elbows out because I am the change. Yeah. We are the change. You know, there's. I can't change the world, but I can be the change. You know, if if I am the woman that a kid my age, you know, the, the little me, will have see, sees me now on television writing books. You know, then I am the change that I want to see in the world. So. The point is, how do I stay here? <laughs> that's it. It's just about staying here and creating that space and saying, actually, elbows out, let's create that space. So I don't know how to change it. All I know is how to stay here and to create that space. And I think, mm. it's that, and I think that's really important. So now, when anyone says, you know, like, where do you see yourself? I say, I want to I I be doing this um, for as long as possible. for as long as possible, just to create that space for more women, people of colour and any one of that, you know, um, ethnic minority to say, you know what, I
2: can be just like her. I yeah. think it's needed. I think you're doing that, you're trailblazing. Um, it feels weird to ask this question because it's 2015 that you burst onto the screen. you won Bake Off, but what, if, any regrets do you have since bursting onto the industry? Anything that you would change, that you would do differently? Well,
3: now when I watch it back, yeah. I, keep, I do tell my husband, you could have told me to like moisturise <laughs> or something. Oh, hang on a second. You have amazing skin. No, what are you talking j- about? No, look, watch it back. Watch <laughs> it okay. back. Seriously, you should have moisturised. Uh, that was one regret. <laughs> uh, apart from that, I don't know. Um, do I have any regrets? I've spent so much of my life regretting yeah. decisions that I've made. Um, I try so hard not to regret decisions because I'm a firm believer in things are meant to be. You know, certain mm. things are just meant to be. Um, and, you know, that I look back on, you know, certain points in my life where, you know, I was at, you know, I didn't go to university, you know, and, and you know, growing up in the community that I did, there were so many restrictions. Um, and rather than regretting, you know, I kind of hope that by doing what I do, I'm knocking down hurdles not just for my own children, but for the next generation. Because you know, growing up uh, as a young Muslim Bangladeshi woman, um, I was always told, "No, you can't. No, you're not doing this." No, you know, and and then there was obviously no representation either, so it was mm. really hard to try and be someone or do something that nobody else was doing. So, you know, um, I'd like to think that um, in years to come that I'd still be doing this. And yeah, I, I don't have massive. Regrets, I try not to regret anything. There are, you know, like mm. I've had a couple of fashion regrets. It's like, why did you wear that? <laughs> why did you wear that? Um, apart from that, no, no. It's not been easy. It's not always been mm. easy. Um, and it's been tough. Because um, there is always, with the good comes the bad. Mm. And, and there have been some really difficult times, especially with social media. Um, but, you know, I think when I look at some of the negative stuff, it just kind of... I just kind of try and think actually there's so much more good mm. and you have to try and see the good. You have
2: to. How do you field social media because I follow you and I notice that you do address those trolls, those people that want Mm. to pick an argument. I mean, how do you do that day in and day out and still have faith in social media, still use (laughs) it, still log back on?
3: Um, uh, Whenever somebody says, whenever there's something negative, I always get a flurry of messages saying, don't don't feed the bots, they're Mm. just bots. I'm like, do you know what, I'm going to fight that bot today. Mm. I don't care if it's a robot, I will fight it. (laughs) But, I have to say, at the very beginning, I would look at it and it would just like it would like it would burn my skin just reading some of the comments, and I would say, no, nope, not going to comment, not going to comment. And it took me a couple of years before I was like, no, do you know what? I'm going to actually comment, and then I did it. And then I, I I type it up. I don't know if you do this, but mm. I type it and then I delete it. Mm. Then I type it again, and then I delete it, and then I do it again, and then I'm like, right, send, done. Can't take that back anymore. Um, and so yeah, I, I kind of I. I just... If somebody was brave enough to say that... Because nobody would say it. Some of the stuff that they say on social media, nobody would ever say to you in your face if you were in front of them. So I just think that if that's a medium for somebody to say negative things to me, then I think it's my job to correct them and tell them how ridiculous they are. (laughs) Um, And so that's what I do. And also, my children are not far off going on social media Mm. themselves. And so I'm very, very careful about what I say and how I say it, because I want to always, always be poised in the way I say it and what I say um, and so because I know my kids will read some of this stuff back and I want them to think well actually mum is as well spoken at home as she is on social media do well, I don't want them to think she's this monster this beast <laughs> on social media so yeah it's really important for me to stay balanced but equally there are times when I see things and I'm like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna address that mm. one today because I'm having, sometimes I'm having a really bad day and I just don't need that
2: mm. extra bit of baggage. And we've touched on it briefly here about your children and, and them engaging in social media. How are you going to field it? What's your plan? How, how are you going to do this? Um, I don't have a
3: plan. <laughs> there is no actual plan. Um, so my, my eldest is going to be 13 very soon and um, he thinks he's 13 but kind of going on 25 mm. as they do and he knows better than me at the moment, like everything I say is wrong. Um, So I'm just gonna, like he knows the rules. We know, know, we talk about what's right and what's wrong and what you can do and what you can't do. And I just think, you know, we have this rule in our house. We say, um, so it's the first time they're going to be children, Mm. and it's the first time I'm going to be a parent. There's no do-over. They get to be parents while the kids once, and I get to be a parent once, and that's it. We don't get a second chance. So the rule is that we just get it wrong together and meet somewhere in the middle. And so now, like, that's our rule. It's like, look, you're going to muck up. I'm going to muck up. Let's just kind of muck up and just kind of do this whole family thing somewhere in the middle. That's what we do. So my son always says, should we just do that family thing in the middle somewhere and just muck up? Yeah, let's do that. So he's gonna muck up, I'm gonna muck up, let's just do it in the middle somewhere, just meet somewhere in the middle and just muck up together. So let's just, that's what we do, that's what we say. Let's just muck (laughs) this whole family up. Yes, So we do. So yeah, he's gonna mess up and he's gonna make mistakes. and I'm not going to lose my rag.
2: <laughs> That's how we're going to do it. You're going to win. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'll be fine. <laughs> um, Nadia, it's always a pleasure talking to you, but enough questions from me, I think, for now. Um, and I'd really like to open up to the audience to Super. get nettering. Um And I know that we have some people on standby with mics, so you can sit in the comfort of your seats and ask away. Hi, it's been very inspirational Hi. listening to you. Um, and I have one question. You are a parent. How do your parents feel about the fact that they didn't know about your anxiety?
0: Um,
2: it, was,
3: it was a tricky one because when they watched the documentary, I probably should have warned them. Mm. Yeah, and that's <laughs> why I'm not a good daughter kind of doing all right with the mum thing. Not such a good daughter. Um, yes, yeah, so I told them and my dad was out in Bangladesh and then when it was like, it was a week after he'd come back from Bangladesh and I said, oh yeah, yeah, so there's this thing. My dad swore the trailer <laughs> and then he said, oh, are you doing this thing? Um, I was like, yeah. And he goes, is it acting? And I said, no, no dad, it's real. It's me. And he was like, oh, okay. And then he watched it and then he said, hmm. He watched it, and I saw him, like, he kind of avoided me for about a week afterwards. And then he said, mm-hmm, I'm very angry with you, young lady. So I don't know why, I forgot that he'd watched it. And I said, why Why are you, why are you angry with me for? And he goes, because you didn't tell me. And I said, so what are you angry with me for? Like, there was a reason why I didn't tell you, so we had to sit down and have that whole conversation with him. I'm definitely a lot Mm. more poised with my kids than I am with my dad, Mm. that's all I'm saying. I was like, sit down, (laughs) sit down and let me explain this to you. Um, And then, so we sat down and I explained it to him. He goes, yeah, I get it, but I feel a little bit sad that you didn't tell me. But, you know, my kid, you know, as in the documentary, I talk about my having a younger brother and sister who were very poorly. Um, And what my dad hadn't realised was that, actually, as children as much as they protect us, we also protect them. And, and, and I think he hadn't realized that, and I think that's what made him really sad, was mm. that as a seven, eight-year-old, I was protecting him by not telling him that I was suffering. And I think that was, eye op- I think that was quite mm. eye-opening for him. Um, and, I, and, and my kids were quite shocked by that as well. And, and I always say, you know, we are each other's protectors. We're not, you know, it's not just my job to protect you. We just, as a family, that's what we do. We, it's that mm. pride mentality. We look after each other. So, yeah, he was shocked. He was shocked. Um, and he said, from now on, you tell me everything. I was like, not everything, Dad. <laughs> not everything.
2: Oh, we have another question right at the back there.
0: Hi. As someone who suffers from anxiety, I want to thank you for your candour, um, for opening up, up a space where we can have these difficult conversations. Yeah. My question for you is, how has celebrity status affected your mental health, or indeed has it?
3: It hasn't helped. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, it's not... Um, going out isn't so easy anymore, so I definitely avoid going out as much. Mm. Um, it's great for me because now the village that I live in, you know, we, we everybody knows, and it's easy because it just I'm a mum at the school. It's and it's taken us four years, but you know, it's it, you know no, we're not no more twitching curtains. Everyone's just like oh, it's just Nadi walking down. Mm. It's 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 really easy at home, uh, in our village. But um, certainly going out isn't as easy as much anymore, and um, it hasn't. You know, it has definitely. Um, It's been a catalyst in my anxiety at times, and it's been really difficult at times. And, and, you know, I have found myself reverting back to old habits, such as like just staying in bed and not going out very much and keeping the blinds drawn and that kind of stuff. But I also recognize those those kind of little behaviors, those um, safety-seeking behaviors. So what I do now is I kind of force myself out of bed, and I force myself to... Open the blinds and do normal things. Um, So it hasn't helped and it's not always easy. Um, But I always tell myself, you know, I love this job. I love doing what I do. So, you know, I make myself get out of bed sometimes and it's not always easy. But, you know, I I do love what I do and I keep reminding myself of that. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to do this and I certainly wouldn't be able to control my anxiety as much. Um, But yeah.
2: I think it's important to remember also that you can be a doctor and have anxiety, as well as being a celebrity and have anxiety. Mm. It affects all people.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it doesn't discriminate. And Mm. quite often, on social media, you get some ignorant people saying that you know it's just another celebrity with anxiety, and it's just, it's if you can break a leg or cut your arm or, or you know, grate your finger as most of us do when we're grating you know, you can get anxiety, you know, like it's, it's an illness, it's a thing, it's a real thing that people can get, so, and it's an illness, so, you know, it doesn't discriminate, so yeah, you're absolutely right.
0: Okay.
2: Oh, we have one over here,
3: question. Hi.
0: Hi. Um, so, uh, in the audience, there's a lot of program makers, and I wondered what advice you could give us uh, to make our productions more inclusive uh, for both. Uh, talent and contributors who have uh, mental health issues, but also uh, production staff and crew, how can we make our productions more inclusive?
3: Oh, that's such a tricky question because I feel like such a newbie. Like, I, mm. I want to change the whole wide mm. world. I want to make everything better. I want to just Boris Johnson and all of that. <laughs> I do, I do. I want to fi- you know, fix everything. Like, I want to fix everything. I might just run for prime minister. Do it. Yeah. Do it. I think I might just do that. <laughs> Free chocolate for everyone. That's what i I'd say. It. Yeah. Do you know what? I don't, I'm not, that's a really tricky question, and mm-hmm. I wish I had the answer. Um, but it's, like I said, I was saying to Leah that, you know, it's not, um, for me, the only way I can actually make a change is to stay here. Um, and there are moments where I wonder why I'm doing this, and, and that's when I, I, I remind myself of how little diversity there is, um, and, you know, and how little we talk about People with the mental health issues, and you know, I am—you know—I've got it all going for me: mental health mm-hmm. issues, brown, Muslim, Bangladeshi woman. Like that's, <laughs> you know, what I mean. Like tick, 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 tick. Um, but you know, here we are, and I get to do all of these amazing jobs, these wonderful jobs that women in my position don't get to do. So it's about staying here, mm. and I think that's really, really important. Um, like I said, I can't change the world, but I might run for prime minister. You never know. <laughs>
2: Uh, We have one at the front, question at the front. Um, Nadia, thank you very much. Thank you. This was tremendous and not just informative, but really, really funny. (laughs) Um, I wanted to ask you if you could help us by saying a little bit about how we might recognise anxiety in the children around us. What what might we be looking for?
3: Um, Well, we... (laughs) We've had like long discussions, and I'm, I'm really hoping to work with lots of charities once this book is out, so we can be kind of working with... What I want to do is work with schools. I'd love to work with schools, so, because we always hear about the, pressures of, the pressure on the NHS, and, and how little they have, um, and, and, and how little of that funding goes to mental health issues. Um, So, I think we have to use the resources that we have, and that's schools and teachers. And I know they already work really, really hard for very little. Um, But I think we have to use the resources that we do have, and that is schools. And I think, apart from parents who look after our children, uh, apart from parents looking after their children, Mm. the, the next caregivers are our teachers and preschool teachers. And I think it's really important to educate them to know what it is that we're looking for and it, you know what it might not be and I think I think back to myself as a child and it might not be a standout kind of this child has anxiety but I think what we need to do um, and that's why I wrote the book was that children need to understand that anxiety exists um, and so often we with kids very young we call it we, we have words like phase um, or they're just it's, it's just something that they're going through mm. or hormones or you know they've had a Late night, and sometimes it's none of those things. Sometimes it is because they are just anxious. Um, so, yeah, I think it's about, I think we need to talk. I think for me, it's really important to get into more schools um, and give the teachers the tools to understand uh, that we need to just talk about it a little bit more. We need to underst- I think children need to understand that anxiety exists. And I think if, as grown ups, we're saying that we need to talk
2: about it, so do children. What were some of your earliest memories of your anxiety? Do you remember how you felt, or where that anxiety sat in your body? I was just always and worried.
3: That's another mm. one. Lots of people say he's just a worried personality. Mm. Um, just they, they're always just a little bit worried, um, and I was that child. Mm. Everyone, the te- I remember the teacher always saying. She, I remember sitting vividly. When you have your um, parents, uh, when you have your parents' evening, and I remember my my mum being there, and my nan. Mum doesn't speak much English, and nan d- can't read or write. So I was like, I don't know why either of them were there. Um, <laughs> but um, I remember them just saying, um, she's just very worried all the time. She worries about everything, and I think we need to recognise those kind of symptoms in children who. Seem like they're worried all the time. Um, that could be anxiety, but I think mm. it's about talking about it. But for me, it was, it was I was the worried kid. I was mm. always worried. And, and I remember, and even now, you saw that bit when I got to yeah. Trafalgar Square. I was like, I didn't die or anything. It's, I'm very fatalist. It's very, when I get, everything is about being dead, always. It's just <laughs> like, I'm going to die,
2: I'm going to die, always, even now. So. Well. Yeah. You are not dead, you are here, <laughs> you're am. alive and kicking, and you're here to stay in this industry, and, and that makes me very, very happy. Um, Nadia, thank you very much for thank talking you. to us. <laughs> thank you for the thank questions Thank you so as well. much. Thank
3: you.